You are listening to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kelly Casperson. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I am with my friend, Dr. Becky Lynn, and she's back. Dr. Lynn, I actually like looked this up yesterday because I'm like, I think she was on my podcast in the past. It was episode 44 and 43. Wow. And now we're like pushing near high 100s. Wow. And yeah. so I'm like, yeah, yeah, that was a while ago. So thanks for being a, an OG for me. We uh, Just for people to go back. Episode 43 was hormones and episode 44 was vaginismus, endometriosis, and sex after breast cancer, which we're going to revisit today. So go back and check them out if you wanted want to get back in the beginning. So thank you for coming back. Super awesome. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited too. We are, so I was reading, as I do, I read my sex medicine journals on the couch at night. And I'm like, oh, look at you. Look what you wrote. And I think I immediately like DM'd you. And I'm like, you come on the podcast and talk about sexual dysfunction, sexual health after breast cancer. You just authored a paper, Low Sexual Desire in Breast Cancer Survivors and Patients, a review. Yeah, it's a really important topic. Where did the like, hey, we need to do a review come from? Why do this paper now? Yeah, I I can remember where I was when I decided I was going to write this paper. It was right after an ISWISH conference, the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. And I guess I had seen maybe a lecture or two on breast cancer and sexual dysfunction, which has always been an interest of mine. I'm actually a breast cancer survivor myself. And I remember I was sitting in the airport with Erwin Goldstein and Sue Goldstein, because like we had this, our flights overlap, totally going to different places. And somehow we got talking on the subject and I thought, yeah, I should, I should write this review. This would be a great review and it's much needed because a lot of the literature on sexual dysfunction and breast cancer is just on the broad sexual dysfunction term. Like it's not very specific to low libido. It usually covers all of the domains, arousal, desire, orgasm, and pain. And so I thought it would be useful for practitioners to have a paper that summarized what we know about low desire in breast cancer patients. And, and I also think it's important because low libido is just as important as pain with sex. Like, I feel like sometimes we're like, oh, it hurts. Okay, physiologically, how can we treat that low libido? Oh, well, you know, whatever. But it's just as important as painful sex. So yeah, I, I decided I would do it like it was 2020 ISWISH conference on the way home. Yeah, once you're touched by the Goldsteins, right? Once they've like tasked you with like, yes, you, and then you're like, yep, that's how, that's how all good projects start. So sexual dysfunction in 30 to hundred percent of women with breast cancer is what's in your paper. And low desire is 5% to 87%. Like it's such a huge range. I know. I know it is such a huge range. I mean, I think it depends on who you're asking, when you're asking them, how old they are, how you're asking them. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things yeah, like what paper on any woman, like women libido paper would be like, oh, only 5% of women have this. I'm like, that seems low. I know. It's <laughs> really low. low. I, and, and if you look at like clinical practice, I mean, a good percentage of my clinical practice is breast cancer survivors and patients. And low libido is incredibly, incredibly common. And, you know, one thing that I wanted to mention about breast cancer and sexual dysfunction is that when you're diagnosed with breast cancer, it's all about getting rid of the cancer, right? Like you see the surgeon, you see the oncologist, you see the radiation oncologist, you got to like get your ducks in a row, get rid of this, which is 
is awesome. That's what you got to do. But nobody really talks about, oh, you know, what is this going to do to your sex drive? What is it going to do to your body image? What is it going to do to your sexual self-confidence? But it's it's really important. So I, I feel like my patients, when they come to see me, they're like, they feel so validated that someone isn't saying to them, oh, you should just be lucky to be alive, right? Oh, this isn't important. You should just, you know, you're you're surviving, great. Don't worry about your sex life. Because, you know, I don't feel that way. And I think most cancer survivors don't feel that way. They're so happy to know that there are things that you can do to improve your sex life and get where you want to be. Yeah, I mean, to me, it was, you know, a lot of women will come in and they're like, I just feel like my sex life isn't that important to people in the grand scheme of like curing cancer. So I, I get that. So they don't want to bring it up. And then the second one was there actually an oncology nurse here came up to me a, a while ago and was like, you realize the rate of divorce after breast cancer treatment? Very high. Because you go from a, a sexual relationship to a not sexual relationship and people's roles change and we don't help them out with that. And, I, and that was the first time I was like, oh, divorce rates are really high after a breast cancer diagnosis. That was never on my radar. Yeah. Yeah. And there was one thing in in the paper that there was a study that mentioned about how important couples counseling is when it comes to sexuality. And I think that is really important because, well, number one, nobody's talking to the patient about it, but let's say that patient finds their way to me or to you and gets treated. Their partner still is unsure about how to find that new normal, how to deal with what's going on. And so it's not surprising to me that including the couple in discussions and counseling can be really useful and really helpful to the couple. hundred percent. Just to normalize it, right? Like many couples find it useful to blah, blah, blah. Instead of like, you guys have a problem, go see a therapist. I'm like, no, no, no. This is just a normal way of kind of recovering or moving forward. Yes. Yeah. Love it. So let's go to the data on, there's interesting data in there of when we do surgery on the breasts and what type of surgery you have influences the risk of sexual dysfunction after. For example, like a radical mastectomy versus a lumpectomy and then with or without reconstruction. Can you talk about the importance of of those? Yeah. So that section I thought was was interesting because the less, the smaller the surgery, the, the less invasive the surgery the less likely you are to have sexual dysfunction. So like women who had maybe just a lumpectomy versus somebody who had a radical mastectomy, those with the lumpectomy have a lower risk of sexual dysfunction. And I find it interesting because, you know, there's so much that goes into that decision, right? Like there's so much more. It's not just, oh, well, if I have, you know, the mastectomy, like a lower risk of recurrence in the future. There's there's so much that goes into that decision. And I, I found it really interesting because I see women all across the board. Some people are like, oh, you know, I just want the lumpectomy as small as possible. Other people are like bilateral double mastectomy. Like I don't want these anymore. They tried to kill me. So, you know, um, but it does, it does play a role. And the other thing that was in there is about like choosing to do reconstruction or not. If you chose to do reconstruction, you had a lower risk of sexual dysfunction, but there's so much that goes into that decision too, because some people, you know, they, they end up having like a a bilateral mastectomy, but then they feel I've been in the hospital so much. I'm tired of going to the doctor. I don't want to go back and deal with the reconstruction where you might have to have, you know, two surgeries, but yeah, no, it's definitely true that the more you retain 
your body as it was before, the less likely you are to have sexual dysfunction, which makes total sense, right? It makes total sense because one of the things that women say after breast cancer is, well, I don't have anything that's woman anymore. Like, let's say they had a mastectomy and they they don't have breasts. Maybe somebody recommended they get a hysterectomy. Now they don't have a uterus and ovaries. And so they really feel less woman and breasts are sexual organs their sexual organs and they, you know, nipple stimulation releases oxytocin in your brain. I mean, they're part of the whole experience. So it's really important. Yeah. I think it's so under, I was literally just having this conversation of like breasts are sexual organs and in our country, and you know much more about this than me, but what I've read is we tend to be very radical with our surgeries above and beyond what even the guidelines suggest. It's we're very fear-based with cancer, cut it all off. And the guidelines are like, we're actually taking way more breasts off than we need to, given what we know about what can be curative. And it's like, there's harm, there's harm to that. And like what we're chasing the fear of cancer. We're so afraid of breast cancer. When and again, please correct me, but when in fact the survival rate for most breast cancer is incredibly high. Yes. Yeah. No, the survival rate, especially early stage is super, super high. You know, with that said, like, so I'll just interject my personal experience here because I think it's important for people to, to know and listeners to know. So I opted to have a bilateral mastectomy. And I did that because at the time, I don't know if any data has changed on this, but at the time, the survival rate was the same, lumpectomy versus mastectomy, but the risk of recurrence was higher with the lumpectomy. And so my decision was, I'm not doing this twice. No way. There is one time I'm going through this. I don't want to have to like deal with having a recurrence. And so I chose mastectomy knowing full well, you know, what that includes, because I'm in this profession, right? Like I know that, like, I know they do nipple sparing now, but like, you know, you might have no feeling on your breasts or it might affect your sexual dysfunction worse than a lumpectomy. But, you know, for everybody, it's a personal decision. So, you know, I do, I totally, if somebody says I want to do the lumpectomy and not go the radical way, I, I appreciate that. For me, I went the more radical knowing that the chance of survival was the same, but the risk of recurrence was higher with the lumpectomy. So I'm like, done. Adios. Yeah. <laughs> See you later. Let's talk about the medications now. I'm talking about, maybe we want to separate these out or not, but the role of chemotherapy on sexual function afterwards, and then the role of the anti-estrogen meds on sexual dysfunction afterwards. Yeah. Well, chemotherapy throws you into a menopause. And so menopause has all those sexual side effects, vaginal dryness being a huge one, but also low libido. But then low libido, if you have vaginal dryness and sex is painful, then you're going to have low libido. Why would you want to have sex if it doesn't feel good? So they're definitely interconnected, but chemo can throw you into a menopause. And, you know, it's surprising to me how many younger women have breast cancer. In my practice, I have a, a contingency of like several really young women. And, you know, my medical assistants, they freak out each time because they're, you know, they're in their 20s and scary. And you throw a 20 something year old into menopause, that is a huge abrupt change in your hormone levels and they feel it. Hot flashes, low libido, vaginal dryness. I mean, it's, it's really, really tough. So chemo, you know, throws you into menopause, not to mention it makes you tired. It makes you nauseated. So, you know, you really don't feel like having sex because you're not feeling good anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And then a lot of people, 
are on the the aromatase inhibitors, so the anti-estrogens, for years after they're done with their surgery, they're done with their radiation, like, you know, five years plus taking a medication that's actively causing, you know, low libido, vaginal dryness, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, the aromatase inhibitors, like, you know, they lower your estrogen levels even lower than the normal postmenopausal range, which is fantastic for preventing recurrence of breast cancer, but not so kind to the vagina and the bladder and anything that's estrogen dependent. Your bones. Yeah. You did a nice summary in the, in the paper on the studies looking at non-hormonal vaginal moisturizers and sexual function. Mm-hmm. Do you talk about like, do you have like a favorite vaginal moisturizer for a woman who's on an aromatase inhibitor? Like, do you have your like preferred breast cancer specific? Like these really work well for women? Yeah, I do. (laughs) So, you know, I I do think like coconut oil and Crisco work just fine. Some people freak out when they hear Crisco, like that just sounds too weird. But I do have my, my favorite product is a Rosebud Honor. It's just a really nice consistency. It's all natural products. And this is going to sound really weird, but it smells good. Like it smells like roses. And it's just, and you can actually use it as a chapstick too on your lips. It's just really moisturizing. So yeah, we, we carry that one in my office and it's on my website if anybody wants to purchase it, but it's a, it's a great one. That's the one I chose to carry in my office. I love it. And would you, would you recommend people just start on that? Like prophylactically, like, Hey, I'm going in. Can you like treat the skin well from the beginning? So we're not, cause I always feel like we're trying to make up for lost ground. We're trying to make up for like five years of aromatase inhibitors. Right. Right. That's so true because by the time they get to me or you, they've been on nothing. So yes. I mean, I talk about vulvar care measures, vaginal moisturizing. You can start, I mean, you don't have to have cancer to moisturize the vagina. Like if you feel dry, you can use a vaginal moisturizer and you're not going to, there's like very low risk. The, the biggest risk is you're going to feel wet and uncomfortable, you know, and maybe not do it the next day. But definitely anybody can moisturize the vagina. I kind of liken it to like if you wash your hands and then you just put some lotion on your hands, like we do that. Everybody, people do that. So you can moisturize the vagina. I always tell people, I'm like, face is a billion dollar skincare industry, billions of dollars on our face. And it's just more skin. The role in safety of vaginal estrogen after breast cancer treatment, ACOG has a statement paper on it. We got to sing it from the rafters. Can you talk briefly about vaginal estrogen after breast cancer and how it's different than systemic estrogen? Oh, it is so much different from systemic estrogen. It doesn't increase your risk of blood clot, breast cancer, heart attack, stroke, all those things that like women fear, although that's another topic of discussion, you know, systemic hormones. But vaginal estrogen is super, super safe. I didn't really address it in that paper because it wasn't, there weren't a lot of things connected to libido or studies, but I definitely give it as an option to my patients with breast cancer. And I feel like there's some really safe ways to do it when you have breast cancer. And like I said, low dose vaginal estrogen has never been linked to recurrence of breast cancer, but everybody's scared of estrogen, especially when your oncologist said, don't you ever touch estrogen again? Estrogen is bad, you know, whatnot. The ones that I typically choose with my breast cancer patients are, and it depends, right? It depends on 
the stage of their cancer. It depends on are they on an aromatase inhibitor or are they on tamoxifen, which blocks the estrogen receptor. But usually my go-tos are Invexi, which is the little pink gel cap. They have a four microgram dose and they've done a study where they look at the blood levels of estradiol in women after taking Invexi 4 and after getting a placebo. And there's no difference. So it really looks like it's not really absorbed and it still works fantastic. And it's estradiol and estradiol like does so many wonderful things for the vagina, helps it makes the cells that make moisture, collagen, elastin, like it not only takes away the pain, but can actually make sex pleasurable. I do use Interosa, which is intravaginal DHEA, because your serum hormone levels stay in the normal postmenopausal range. In women with on, on aromatase inhibitors, because the goal of the AI is to keep your blood level lower than the normal postmenopausal range, like I usually don't use cream so much. Sometimes I do. Probably wouldn't be my first choice because I know that the creams are absorbed a little tiny bit more. Not much though. And and so I, you know, I, I really feel like if a woman has tried the moisturizers, the lubricants, and they're still having painful sex, that vaginal estrogen or vaginal DHA, and you just go through the risks benefits and let the woman decide. Totally. And then you tell them not to read the package insert (laughs) on the the estrogen product. Exactly. No, you have to do that. You have to do that. And I always explain about class labeling by the FDA. So I'm, I'm sure you've mentioned this somewhere on your podcast, but Every estrogen product has to be labeled the same. So whether you swallow a pill or wear a patch, it always has to say, do not use if you have breast cancer. This can increase your risk of breast cancer, blood clot, heart attack, stroke. It's so frustrating. Totally. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I tell people, I'm like, listen, I wish that this stuff we put in your vagina, it was not called estrogen, right? Because it's such a, it's such a weighted word in population in general, but let alone in the breast cancer survivorship community. But I'm like, I wish this was called something not estrogen, but intrarosa, right? With prosterone, like they made it up. It's a made up word for DHEA. So I'm like, could, could you just, and that's why Invexi, like, well, it doesn't sound like estrogen. Okay, so talk about the trial of bupropion, which they did an open study that showed improvement. And then they're working on a randomized controlled trial versus placebo, which is pending. So bupropion is an atypical antidepressant. Is that right? I don't know. It's it's not like Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil. So it works through dopamine. And dopamine is your reward neurotransmitter that makes you feel good and makes you want more of whatever it is that's caused your brain to release more dopamine. So it makes sense. It's, it's biologically plausible that dopamine would help with sex drive. And it's not a hormone. And it works through dopamine, puts dopamine kind of like pro-sexual. So, I mean, it makes sense. And wouldn't that be nice? If, you know, we had bigger studies, more studies showing that bupropion helps with sex drive because, you know, it's, it's got a generic, so it's cheap. The only thing about bupropion is you can't use it with tamoxifen. So yeah, it's like a category X. Interesting. Can you use it with the aromatase inhibitors? Yeah. I see. I don't know. Maybe it's different where you are. I see more aromatase inhibitors than tamoxifen after, after treatment for breast cancer now. Oh no. I see way more aromatase inhibitors than tamoxifen yeah, too. too. I think the survival rate is a little bit better depending on the stage. 
And it's a tough one. Tamoxifen is kinder and gentler to your sex life than aromatase inhibitor inhibitors are and kinder and gentler to your bones and, and things like that. But I do, I do think I see more people, more women on AIs here. Well, in St. Louis than tamoxifen. Yeah, same, same in my neck of the woods. There is, a, I did not know that there are a, several studies looking at the role of vaginal testosterone cream in patients on aromatase inhibitors. Mm-hmm. And is that because they're not doing estrogen on these people? Or like, why were they picking testosterone? Yeah, so some of those studies are older. And I think that they came out. So, you know, I've been doing this a while. And really how we use vaginal estrogen now compared to how we did like, you know, 2012 or something, a lot of people were really afraid to use vaginal estrogen in women with breast cancer. Okay, so that explains why we have these studies. Yes. And, and I used to. So honestly, like way back when I used to do compounded testosterone for women with breast cancer and it works great. And it's, it's local, not systemic. Local. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, a, like what I used to do was a compounded vaginal cream testosterone. And I just copied what they did in those couple of studies that they did. But over time, you know, we've really moved more towards using vaginal estrogen, which is the gold standard. We know it works. Tons of data to show that it works. So yeah, like with the several like consensus papers that are out about treating genitourinary syndrome and menopause in women and in women with breast cancer, I feel like there's definitely been a shift towards the acceptance of using vaginal estrogen. Whereas like, you know, maybe 10 years ago, it wasn't quite as acceptable. And I think the same now, you know, with the DHEA, because to, to me, the DHEA, the intra-rosa, is so expensive, it's prohibitive where I am. So, like, but people were using it. Is it cheaper where you are? Even compounded DHEA is expensive. Yeah, so the most people will pay here is $85 a month, which is expensive. That adds up. Like, if they have some coupon card and it's good with their insurance, it can be 35 But it is kind of cost prohibitive prohibitive. We like figure out the cheapest ways that we can get medicines. Like we, um, in my office, we buy estrus cream wholesale because for some people it's really expensive. So we can get it for about $40 and a meds, Kelly. <laughs> it's awesome. You can get your, your patient's estrus cream for about 40 bucks. Amazing. Yeah, it is. We do that all the time. And then, um, in Vexi, we have a local pharmacy who the cash price is $50, whereas every other pharmacy in town, the cash price is 75 So we always send it there. We like have to figure out what's the best way to get everybody their medicine the cheapest. But yeah, because this is lifelong maintenance. This is skincare for life. This isn't like take it for a month and you're good, right? So we need it to be cost-effective, easy to access, you know, all, all these things. If you're in peri or postmenopause and think your hair and skin look unhealthy, you're not imagining it. Menopause naturally affects your hair and skin. Hormone changes can affect appearance years before and long after menopause. Sylvessa is the first comprehensive system designed to restore and protect hair and skin affected by estrogen decline. The Sylvessa system is designed to restore the collagen and nutrients impacted by declining estrogen, improving the appearance of your hair and skin today and protecting against future damage tomorrow. Formulated with hyaluronic acid to visibly improve skin texture and reduce fine lines and wrinkles. Give Sylvessa by Bonafide a try today. No hormones and no prescription required. 
To get 20% off your first purchase when you subscribe to any product, go to hellobonafide.com slash notbroken and use promo code notbroken. That's hello, B-O-N-A-F-I-D-E dot com slash notbroken and code notbroken for 20% off at checkout. For best prices and free shipping, go directly to the hellobonafide.com slash notbroken website. This is their best offer anywhere, so check it out and use promo code notbroken. There's an abstract at Ishwish this year on Philbanserin, trade name is Addy, in the breast cancer population. That, so that's the oral med, again, not your typical SSRI, but it was studied originally as an antidepressant. It works in the brain, same thing, dopamine pathway, and that's promising. Have you used the Addy or Philbanserin in your breast cancer survivorship population? All the time. And what are you noticing? I feel like I have good results with phlebanserin and most people like how they feel on it and want to stay on it. And I would say that I, you know, I kind of, when I talk to people about the medicines for low libido, whether it's testosterone or Addy or Bilesia or anything, you know, I always let them know that they're not going to have this like crazy through the roof sex drive where they're dangerous to take outside, right? Or like a 15 year old boy, like that's not going to happen. But it makes them a little, it's very subtle, but they're more receptive, more spontaneous sexual thoughts throughout the day. And people like that. And so I've seen great success with Addy. And, you know, when Addy came out, there was all this discussion about horrible side effects. Really? It's so well tolerated. I don't know if you use it a lot in your population. I use it a ton. You know, I definitely, my premenopausal women, it's always an option. And my breast cancer patients, it's definitely an option. Even though it's like if they're menopausal, it's an off-label use. But there are two good studies showing that it works in postmenopausal women. Um, but I love having that option. And I, I did see that abstract. And I'm like so happy that I can tell my patients, now we have some data to show that it works. I'd say, I mean, for me, again, it's cost, right? It is like the, I'm like, oh, how long do I have to wait around for this to go down? And for insurance to not be like, this is for sex, you can't have it. I know, I know. Yeah, that drives me crazy. Here we get it in St. Louis, we can get it $99 a month. But if you buy three months at a time, one of the local pharmacies, it'll be 75 a month. That's not bad. That's not bad, my friends. That's pretty good. Once changing gears, and again, I just like had a thought to mention all, we are not your doctors. We're talking about big adult decisions that need to be between you and your own doctor. Go see them. Just my little asterisk in the middle of our big medicine conversation. Switch gears, there's, we need way more data on this. But I, I get these messages on the weekly, if not on the daily, you probably do too. I had DCIS, I had low grade, it was five, 10 years ago. My menopause symptoms are insane. Can I just take some low dose systemic hormones? I feel fine. Like, we don't have great data. What are you telling people? Who is okay? Who is okay to say, like, I worry about my bones. I worry about my mental health. Can I be on a little bit of... And, and now just for the people that we're talking about systemic hormone therapy after a diagnosis of breast cancer. Very different than va- all this vaginal, vaginal stuff we're talking about. Yeah, I will usually talk to the oncologist and get records of what that patient had because they might remember it a certain way. And maybe it's not as low stage as they remember it. But I usually talk to the oncologist before I would start a woman with breast cancer on systemic hormones. Yeah. Any data to say like DCIS is okay, or like stage one is okay, if it's been five years? Do we have any of that? I haven't seen any data on that. 
I haven't. It might be out there, but I haven't seen it. How many breast cancer survivors live in America? Like how big is this population? Oof. I don't know, but I think it's really big. I mean, if you think like one in eight women will get breast cancer, that's a huge amount of women. Yeah, because to me, like this is what's so my, one of the benefits of being a urologist is I take care of the men. And what's happened in the prostate cancer and breast cancer is different than prostate cancer, I know. But men are like, I just need a little bit of testosterone. And we were like, no, that is sacrilege. That is not okay, never ever. And then we were like, in the setting of a clinical trial, if it's been five years, if it was low grade, if it was cured, yes. And now we're saying, you don't have to be in a clinical trial anymore. If it was low grade and you're cured and you monitor your PSAs, we can give you a little bit of testosterone. And that's been in the shift of my career. And so I'm like, I don't think the, gyne- the gynecologists aren't seeing what we're doing on the man front with hormones after breast cancer. And remember, there's a Nobel Prize because of a scientist correlation of testosterone and breast cancer, or sorry, testosterone and prostate cancer. So like that is a big link, right? They got a Nobel prize for figuring that out. So to me, I'm like, it was the same stigma, the same dogma. And the men were like, I have no sex drive, I'm gaining weight. I have no muscles. I used to be able to lift awesome at the gym and now I can't. Can I please have a little bit? And we've really shifted in the last 10 years with them. I put it into the universe of like, look, just can anybody see what we're doing with the men? Because we've got millions and millions of women and, and some are very young women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very young women who could benefit from estrogen for like 20, 30 years. That's the thing. Yeah, that's the thing. It's the survivorship stuff of like, you're going to have osteoporosis for 40 years. You're looking at multiple issues, right? How do we, how do we protect these bones? How do we, and I, I even saying this, I'm like, do I sound like a radical? I don't, I don't know. I just like, I just want answers because women are coming to me. Women are coming to me and I have nothing to tell them. Yeah. Can I ask you one question? Oh, always. So like, you know, there's so many of these testosterone clinics everywhere for men and I'm not a urologist. I do not take care of men. So I'm like, no, nothing. But I know the link between testosterone and prostate cancer. So is there any link between testosterone replacement in men leading to prostate cancer or is it only? No. No. Okay. Okay, good. That's good. Because there's a lot of it, a lot of men out there on testosterone. Yo, yeah, absolutely. And I would say a lot of men out there are being mismanaged on testosterone. They have, they have the same issues that women do. They go, they go to a place because they want to feel better because because the, the American Western medical system isn't serving them. I just saw a guy, he was on HCG, testosterone, tamoxifen, and an aromatase inhibitor for his low testosterone. Men are being mismanaged also. <laughs> so yeah, it's not just the women who are being like sold thousands of dollars of mismanagement. But yeah, there's some data, and, and you know, the prostate cancer people can correct me, but there's some data saying actually having low testosterone to begin with may give you an increased risk of prostate cancer. And when you're on testosterone supplementation, they always say you have to get your PSA, a hematocrit, because you can have a high, high blood, increased clotting risk if it's too high. Right? So you have to follow your labs, but the correlation of being on testosterone and not leading to prostate cancer is, it's not significant. It's the same thing for women though, right? Of like, you've got these women on hormones and then they get breast cancer. Does it mean the hormones cause the breast cancer? no. But our brains, our brains are correlation machines and we can't like, we just can't resist blaming breast cancer on something. Right, right. Well, the first thing that happens, yeah, that if you get cancer, you're like, why? Yeah. 
why, why did this happen? That's just the natural response. Um, but yeah, that is, you know, explaining to, cause it's a natural instinct of our brain to want to correlate things. And then to tell your patients like, well, just cause you're on something doesn't mean it cost it. And the same with the testosterone and prostate cancer. Like lots of guys are going to get prostate cancer. It doesn't mean the testosterone they were on caused it. Right, right. And I kind of talk about that when I talk about using low-dose vaginal estrogen. You know, it hasn't been shown to cause recurrence, but you might get a recurrence anyway. You know, like, but was it the low-dose vaginal estrogen that you were on? No, probably not. But like, it could still happen. Totally. And just realizing like, that's brain's going to brain, man. That's what they want to do. It doesn't mean that, that we have any data to back it up. Right, right. Let's talk. You're a proponent of researching and studying medical marijuana. And, and for like the listeners in the back, we need to separate out like what CBD versus THC, right? Like the stuff that gets you high versus the stuff that's medicinal that doesn't get you high. And the, what, what study do we have on either one of those and sexual function? Yeah. So I'll give you just a little bit of background, how I ended up in this space. So when I, I used to be full-time faculty at St. Louis University, and I noticed that a lot of my patients would come with problems with, with orgasm or libido or pain, and we'd try and figure out what was going on, try and help them. But then they would tell me that, oh, well, you know, I drove to Colorado and I got some weed and my problem was fixed. I had great libido. I had great orgasm. And so it sort of raised my curiosity. And so I thought, I wonder what the data shows. So if you go to the internet, all over the internet, weeds and aphrodisiac, you know, great orgasms, all this stuff. But when you go to the medical literature, of course, there's really not much. There's a lot of like, you know, rat sex studies, which are fun and interesting. Um, but, you know, not a lot of human, not a lot of, right? Like, see what happens with the rat. Well, actually all of the human data. Well, maybe now there's more studies that are not like this. But when I was looking, it was all questionnaires you know, what do you think happens to sex when you use marijuana? And there were very few, like we actually wrote a review paper and it wasn't a difficult paper to write because there wasn't a lot, there weren't a lot of studies, but what we have found in questionnaires and what we did at SLU, um, we found that women in general, if you use a moderate amount of marijuana or cannabis before sex, it appears to improve overall sexual satisfaction, depends on which questionnaire you're looking at, improves orgasm, lessens pain, improves libido. If you use too much and you're like zonked out and you can't move or you're really paranoid, well, that's not good for the sexual experience at all. And it can lead to vaginal dryness too, I think, in higher doses. Is that right? Yeah, it's a vasodilator. It's interesting. We don't know for sure. And there's a lot of like vaginal lubes out there. So the thought is, well, it's a vasodilator, so it should improve lubrication. The study that I did, it had no effect on lubrication, but like the studies are really poor quality, right? Like they're super poor quality. It's not like we measured vaginal lubrication in women who got THC versus a placebo. And there have been some where, it, where it, that said that it improves lubrication. So, but then like, if you think of lubrication, did it improve lubrication because it's a vasodilator or did it improve lubrication because now you had great libido and you were really excited and now you wanted to have sex but also you know you would think it causes dry mouth like it, it can dry things out too and the mouth is totally similar to the vagina really super similar and actually I saw a talk once and this sticks with me to this day about like if you took mouth cells and you took vaginal cells and you didn't tell the pathologist which one was which they're super similar 
And like the, the talk that I saw, totally veering off course here, but they were talking about using mouth cells to create new, new vaginas, like in little girls with pediatric gynecologists giving the talk who don't have a vagina for whatever reason, but the mouth, there's not enough tissue that they can take. But anyway, I digress. That was really fascinating. Super interesting. So just like, like women say, you know, oh, why do I have to put something in my vagina every night? They get tired of using vaginal estrogen. I'm like, you brush your teeth every night. You take care of your mouth. So, you know, you take care of our vagina. I think that's such an important point of like, I'm going to use the word entitlement and I don't mean it in a bad way, but we're like entitled to not have to do anything to maintain our body. And like, we actually know that that's not true, right? Like we exercise and we move it and we give it sleep every night. Like we actually do a lot to maintain. We feed it, we water it, we brush its teeth, we floss. You get a water pick when you're in your mid forties. Like... <laughs> right? Like we, we wear our seatbelt, like literally we do stuff all the time to maintain our bodies. And then we think we're entitled to not take care of a certain part of it. And I think it's just that, that reframe of like, we brush our teeth, you guys, because we want good care, right? That's all this is. I chuckle at this point of the women who are like, I didn't like the vaginal estrogen cream because it was messy. And I'm like, do you remember your vagina when you were 22? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you forgot that what vaginas vaginas gonna vagina like yeah exactly. that's, what, that's what moisture feels like down there and we all have that we just you know you lose it slowly till it's dry and then you're like oh it's moisture is blah and you're like yeah yeah welcome know, to what like, is this discharge right you're like welcome to 19 again like it, it won't burn and sex will be better but yeah it's really just this reframe of like but i shouldn't have to take care of that it's like, well, no, it's an important part of your body. As important as your mouth, because it's kind of like your mouth. What about the like CBD oils that people are using for like arousal oils and stuff like that? Is it like buyer beware? Because it might be placebo. Because like, well, there's one brand that's like put put on 30 minutes before and then rub counterclockwise. And I'm like, well, that would work with anything. Exactly. So there really isn't any data on CBD like that I've seen. And I keep an eye out for, for these things because it's my interest. I haven't seen anything really on CBD, but it's all out there. And the thing with CBD is it's not regulated. Right. And so the FDA has done studies where they took products of, you know, CBD products from various companies and tested them to see what was in them. Some had CBD, some had nothing, some had THC. And so it's definitely a buyer beware when it comes to CBD, for sure. Because you just, you know, you just don't know what you're getting. I have tried it, though, in my patients because it's legal, right? So like, you know, here we use medical marijuana in, in Missouri, it's, it's legal. But so I have recommended it to some of my chronic pain patients because CBD binds to the TRIP-V1 receptor, and the vestibule and the, and the vulva and trip V1 is the same thing that capsaicin binds to, to help decrease pain. And so it's biologically plausible that it would work. And I would say it's works about 50% of the time. It's definitely not a, Oh my God, buy this CBD and your chronic pelvic pain and vulvodynia will be gone. That's not going to happen. But I have seen some people and who knows if it's placebo or not, right? Like maybe they really want it to work. So it works. But it doesn't matter if it works for them. I'm, I'm game with that. But you have to be careful where you buy your CBD from. Definitely. Like I wouldn't buy it in a gas station. <laughs> right. It's like, don't buy much at a gas station except for gas. That's, that's probably advice. That's interesting. I would love more data on CBD and pelvic pain, vaginismus, pain with entry, stuff like that. 
So Kelly, um, I have a paper, I'll send you the link that where we looked at THC and, and mostly THC, less so CBD. It was a review paper on what we know about its use in things like chronic pelvic pain and endometriosis. There are groups in Israel that are looking at using THC for endo pain. And the paper kind of discusses how it would work. And actually... Um, Systemic? Yeah, systemic. And THC in Canada is a third line choice for pain treatment for neuropathic pain. So like there is data for pain. There is absolutely data for pain. And a lot of endo pain, you know, it's inflammatory, but it's also neuropathic pain. You get that wind up pain. So it makes sense that THC could help with endo pain. And I do, I do see a lot of women with chronic pelvic pain. And once you exhaust all the standard treatments, if there's still some pain going on and they have chronic pain, then, then I'll recommend THC. And I do it with CBD because if you, you combine THC and CBD, so, so one thing that's really important about this is like people are like, oh, but I can't be stoned all day, right? And so when you use cannabis for a medicine, the goal is not to be stoned. The goal is to use the lowest dose to treat your symptoms. And so when you combine it with CBD, so I usually do like a one-to-one -one ratio starting, then the CBD negates some of that high effect, but you still get the pain benefits from the THC. It's interesting. Amazing. What an amazing talk. You know so much. Like you're truly an expert and you can tell like the experts because they'll go on like tangents about like mouth cells. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and rat studies. And you're like, that's why you know you're talking to an expert, people. I know, I know. They love, they love their topic. It's so yeah, good. Yeah, Awesome. Anything else you want the, our breast cancer survivor women to know or people who are living with these people or doctors who are treating these people? Like any final thoughts on sex after breast cancer? Yes. So you can still have a happy, fulfilling, lovely sex life after breast cancer. You don't have to give it up. And the thing is, like, I feel like women go to their oncologist and their oncologist says, well, I can't help you. You should be happy to be alive. And I don't fault the oncologist, right? Because they don't know what you and I know about sexual function. So if that's the message that you get, then, you know, go to the ISWISH website or the NAMS website and find a provider in your area because those providers know a lot about sexual dysfunction after breast cancer and, and there's treatment out there. So I guess my, my point to breast cancer survivors is don't take, oh, well, don't worry about it anymore as an answer. Beautiful closing remarks. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Hey friends, if you love what I'm doing on this podcast and love who I'm interviewing, I want to encourage you to join the private membership where you get a front seat pass with all of my interviews and you can even ask them questions. In addition, there's going to be group coaching with me and my upcoming guest coach to take this work, to go deeper, to live your best sex and love life. Join today at www.kellycaspersonmd.com membership. I'll see you on the inside.